Hey, this is Mark Lintzemeyer, host of the Partially Examined Life and the Nakedly Examined Music Podcast. The purpose of this special presentation is to give you a glimpse of some of what's been going on over at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I'm going to be playing clips from four episodes. You're going to hear a whole song from four artists and then hear me talk about that song with the artist. So I'm hoping at least one of these will catch your fancy and you'll want to jump over and hear the whole episode. On this program, I'm going to talk to Nick Kershaw, whose singles from the 80s you might remember, described by Elton John as the best songwriter of his generation. Then we'll turn to Ken Stringfellow, one of the two front men for Chelsea Clinton's favorite band, The Posies, which established itself in early 90s Seattle. And Ken was also part of the reconstituted Big Star, which is a band that middle-aged music critics are generally in love with. And finally, our longest segment will be with Steve Hackett, a truly amazing guitarist. He actually invented tapping. The thing that Eddie Van Halen is famous for, Steve invented it. Through most of the 70s, he played with Genesis. I mean, they were cool and artsy. And he's released 25 solo albums since then. His music is very cinematic, highly layered. But first, let's turn to Robbie Fulks, a super smart, Grammy-nominated guy, plays country folk. We're going to talk about a song from his newest album, Upland Stories. Enjoy. So America is a Hard Religion is the first song we're going to play. This song and a couple other songs are referring to this James A.G. 1936 trip to Alabama. Is that what's informing the style here or just the lyrical content? Well, it's a bit general, but I was working on a show for a while with a playwright, and we were working on sort of musicalizing the James A.G. experience and maybe deconstructing it a little bit. And so for the first batch of songs that I wrote for that, I just sort of attacked the problem of writing a musical about a weird subject like that with using various angles. And some of it was to lend some voice to A.G.'s autobiographical experiences, and some of it was to, like, uh, like America is a Hard Religion was like an effort to speak from the voices of the people people whose lives he chronicled, the cotton tenants in Alabama. And the musical style that you referred to, I'm by no means an expert on old-time banjo styles. But some touchstones for me would be the music of Doc Watts. And Doc has always been a real huge hero to me ever since I was probably three years old. And he was, among other things, a really great banjo player. And his version of Doc Boggs's, Doc Boggs would be another touchstone for this kind of music. But Doc Watson's version of Doc Boggs's country blues is illustrative of this genre, if anybody cares to hear it. It's clawhammer banjo and simple, uh, yet deceptively complex melodic phrases with a kind of uh, lamentation kind of a tone to it. Some rule from the sky, some inch cross the ground. Their bent backs turn to all heavy and above sends down. Scratching puff from this earth, what gold it may give. Fattening on feasts to come, laboring now to live. And America's a hard religion. Not just anyone may endure. America is a hard religion. Some never do surrender. Savage land, mother knows not why To plant a seed in rocky soil and perhaps to die Freedom come it may to this child instead Freedom comes, freedom goes, father is surely dead And America's a hard religion Not just anyone may enter 
America is a hard religion, so never do surrender. Our hearts doubts to make us strong Cheered by loved ones that from the graveyard say All my tears surely gone after I fly away And America's a hard religion Not just anyone may enter America's a hard religion Some never do surrender All right, so the claw hammer banjo, what makes it a claw? How is that different from a regular banjo? (laughs) It's not regular or irregular, I guess. It's a style that is based on African styles, and it's it's probably the oldest style of banjo playing by that measure. Like the more modern style that people might be familiar with is based on Earl Scruggs' three fingers. It's called a three-finger style, which is Uh based on rolls, and the three fingers used to the middle and the index and the thumb, and you wear picks most of the time. But on the claw hammer style, you don't use picks. You make your hand in the shape literally of a claw. Kind of like you're holding an egg, your hand is semi-closed. And it's uh, for me, because I grew up playing in the Scrugg style, it was a really counterintuitive style of playing. And I started trying to teach myself with the help of some other good banjoists in 2009 when I bought the banjo that I use now. So it's a style that I love, and it's uh, a midlife crisis kind of an effort to get my head and hands around that style. And was this written sort of as a banjo expression piece, like as an excuse to do that on the banjo? Or was, again, you were approaching this from... It was written on the banjo, yeah, because you write on different instruments. Like, I do almost all my writing on the guitar. But if you tune the guitar differently, you get different results. If you compose on the banjo, you get different results. If you write on the piano, different again. So um, definitely, if you're the kind of guy like me that writes hundreds and hundreds of songs, you're always trying to, like, find new things to do. So it's not the same as the last time that you sat down to write. And yeah, that particular tune came out of the banjo. Okay, so it was not that you were trying to do something for this musical and you said, let me try it with a banjo. It was that you were just learning the banjo, this style, and decided to, I'm just trying to figure out which thing came first. (laughs) Well, no, I was writing for the musical and it seemed to me like the banjo was an appropriate instrument to use. It was the kind of instrument that people in Alabama that A.G. Chronicled would play. I bet of the six families that that he was with that There was a banjo player among them, for sure. I mean, it was just really common back then, and that would be the style that they played in. And the style is very expressive of rural folks in the first half of the 20th century, for sure. If that's the kind of thing that people would be playing as folk music in 1936, what does that mean in terms of when it was probably actually written, that style, things that they would be playing? Oh, I don't think I understand. So folk music sort of by its nature, well, this has been, if we sing this land is your land, Unless you're a musical scholar, you have no idea even when that came from. And so if we're trying to date, this is a sound that you might have heard in the 1930s. Does that mean it more or less arose in the 1930s or it is a folk style that was prevalent in the 1930s, meaning it was inherited from 1880 or something? 
this might be beyond my pay grade, this okay. kind of a question, because I strongly feel like every like there's nothing new under the sun, but I can't name you the antecedents. I'm sure it has antecedents in 19th century uh, minstrel banjo. And okay. that, uh, by the time that it started popping up on records, you know, through Uncle Dave Macon and String Bean in the 30s, that it was a style that had been around for decades. And as I say, probably rooted in Morocco and Africa in a thousand years before that. But I don't know the specific bloodlines of it. Okay. Can you say a little about what this song actually means? This America is a hard religion. Is this referring to something specifically out of the AG book or are you inventing an image that somehow goes with it? I think it's kind of invented. I was thinking like, what's a, a point of view or what's maybe a phrase that could express something that's accurate about America and heartfelt, but also a phrase that could be endorsed by a red state guy and a blue state guy, both, you know, people on both sides of that divide. And I think that phrase could be comprehensible to either side of that divide, that to love America involves you in irrational propositions sometimes, you know, including offering up your own children to be killed, maybe, which is something that rural people probably know more about than urban people, I think. The song was supposed to be coming from a rural white sub working class character, you know, in the play. But it's addressed to, I was picturing it addressed to the kind of people who'd be sitting in the theater, you know. So it's kind of tricky to come up with something for them to express sometimes that doesn't sound like a sociological effort or that doesn't sound like a caricature, or that doesn't sound like a really bending over backwards effort to artistically put yourself in the mind of someone that's uh, in a different box than yourself. And then as this theme continues, I see you're talking about working off the land for subsistence farming or uh, sent to a savage land, mother knows not why. Okay, so this is just the colonial experience paid by... Thanks nor praise, yet we soldier on. Trials to test our hearts, doubts to make strong. Okay, so it just sounds like life is hard. Like, you're just setting up an image here, right? It's not trying to, like, spin a substantial part of the story here. Well, every terrible thing that your country might do to you, living in abject poverty and taking away your children and putting you in the situation where you're in, like, the cotton tenants were, like, this uh, feudal, this modern, like, sort of feudal situation with, with no apparent escape. Everything that's done to you, you react to by strengthening your faith in the institution and by loving it all the more. And I think that's... Uh, like similar to what you do to a god that abuses you. Okay, yes. I, I had seen that this was supposed to be about the AG thing and, and was looking up that he was actually a journalist and wrote this up as a picture of the state of the sharecroppers in Alabama. It was rejected by the editors of Fortune, apparently. Uh, right. Then published, I guess, in a couple different forms as a full book. Yeah, so he was going through the same sort of conflict that I was just describing, where he was writing for one audience about a group of people that weren't in that audience and struggling with... Or it was was an explicit part of his idea of writing that book was to present these people as creations of God, just like you and I are. You know, he was a Christian. And through the book runs a tone of outrage at the very assignment that he's going to be doing this survey and living among these people and chronicling their misfortunes so that the readers of Fortune magazine can better understand their travails. He's just, he summons this very deep outrage at the whole concept of what he's doing. So it's a book that keeps kind of turning on itself and turning itself inside out and impugning its own motives basically. So as writing explicitly for a musical like this, it seems like so many of your songs are story songs or you're developing a character through it, you know, whether it's a very tongue-in-cheek character or playing with country cliches, you know, talking about the hard-drinking kind of character, or, I mean, was this just a very natural extension of the kind of stuff you've done before, or was this a very different 
sort of thing. I think it was different than anything I've ever done. And so far, nothing has come of it except that it formed, you know, a centerpiece of this record that's doing well for me. I was just so pleased that Brian and I started working on this. In fact, I wrote to him this morning and and said, uh, you know, my record was nominated for two Grammys. And I think that validates kind of what we were working on in a small way. And I think we should return to work. Brian was called away to a a TV show. So the whole thing was kind of backburnered for the last, I don't know, a year and a half or something. But, you know, meantime, I was really happy with the way those three songs on the record, A Miracle and, and America's Hard Religion and Alabama at Night, came out. So I hope it's no Well, and very different uh, different approaches musically. I mean, this one, again, this could sound like something from the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack in terms of, you know, very authentic. Whereas the Alabama at Night, the single, is, yes, it's identifiably country, but it sounds very new. Well, thank you. And by the way, I really don't like that movie, so I, I, I reject okay. that as a... Uh, Sorry. No, no, no. So few touchstones, we northerners. I, I lived in Texas for a while. <laughs> I'm not holding you to blame for that. I think a lot of people would take that as a reference point, but I, I think that movie was kind of bullshit. Anyway, that's just a by-the-way point that I, I don't use that as, a, as an entry point into this stuff. Again, that was Robbie Folks, who appears on Nakedly Examined Music, episode 36. Now we're going to hear some of the discussion of the first song that I tackled on Nakedly Examined Music, number 37, with Nick Kershaw. Well, let's get pretty quickly to these tears from 8, 2012. Do you have any introductory words about this musically, thematically, before people hear it? The 6-4 bit in the verses, I kind of keep gravitating towards 6-4. It just seems like a really great time signature. It's got a tempo to it. It kind of gets to the beginning of the next bar, not as quick as you would do if you were in 4-4, but you're not hanging about for two bars. It's just a kind of a a nice tempo. It's a rhythm of lyrics that I keep coming up with. It's just, and I sort of hear it in my head and I think, oh, that's 6-4 again. Why do I keep coming back to that? But it just kind of works. It just kind of speeds things along a little bit. Yeah, well, and this one is especially interesting because when that's introduced, the beginning of the verse is before the beat actually starts. So it's like you're doing a pickup note, but it lasts. I see tears running down her, and then it's like the verse actually starts. Yeah, see the tears run down her face, and that that's the first beat of that 6-4 bar, yeah.
the main riff here, the super catchy part, has two interlocking bits, which either of them could have run the song by itself. This da 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 da, and then you got the bam ba da da, and so you introduce them in sequence. Say something about how those came together. I mean, was it really that you're playing the keyboard riff and then you're singing the guitar riff? Or how do these things come about? You know what? I can't honestly remember because <laughs> these things just, I don't, I can't remember if it happened as part of the recording process. Like I recorded one, I've got one part together and then the other kind of locked in with it because it's kind of an answer part. Or whether it's just in my head in the first place. Because I do quite often hear things in my head as a complete thing. So I'll hear a bass line or I'll hear a guitar part in relation to the keyboard part or whatever. So that, that it could well have come like that in the first place. I just listened to you on the Soda Jerker podcast. One of the things that came out clearly in that was that unlike many artists who might just be strumming a chord progression and then singing stuff over it, which I know you do that too, but yeah. that you often have a melody first, a melody clearly in mind, and then that's the thing that carries through while you're then doing a lot of mucking about on chords underneath it that gives you a certain freedom that you can change keys in crazy ways. It's not just that you have this strange chord progression that then you have to come up with some kind of melody that actually works over that, which might be unnatural. No, it's the natural melody comes first. So for instance, when I do that, I do a lot of walking around and just humming something. But then I find when I sit down it's actually the dumbest possible chords. It's actually chords that I would have been insulted if I just sat down and it's like a one, four, five thing. But so maybe it was the don, 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 don. Like that's the main catchy thing. That can be a curse as well. I do exactly the same thing. I'll think of this great melody in my head and I'll think of the chords around or I imagine the chords. I can usually work out what they are in my head anyway because that's mm-hmm. quite, you know, quite easy to do. But then I'll sit down with an acoustic guitar or whatever and, and actually strum it and vocalize it. And I think, but uh, yeah, like you, oh, it's those chords again. I keep coming back to those chords. Why do, and then try and mess it up. Yes, throw in a ninth. Make the key go up. Do something. Whereas quite often, I mean, I have found over the years that quite often, actually, no, it's all right. You are allowed to use those chords. It's not like they're kind of been banned under the Geneva Convention or anything. You are actually allowed to use those chords. But I do struggle with that sometimes. I kind of think, well, this is a bit normal. This is a bit ordinary. Can it be any good? But quite often, your first instincts were right. But sometimes, I mean, I get part of a tune together. I don't hear where it's going. I don't know where it's going to go. It might go off on a tangent somewhere. At that point, I might sit down on an acoustic and try and let the melody lead me somewhere else harmonically. Is it one of the advances of being a more mature songwriter that you don't feel the need in this song like to throw in quite as tricky <laughs> chord? I mean, you've already got the 6-4. I've already got the 6-4. You don't have to pull out all your ammo in one song. You know, you don't have to do stuff because you can. That is something I have learned because after the first couple of albums, I became aware that I was getting a reputation amongst musos for doing just that, for being quite adventurous harmonically. And it became a little bit of a badge for me. Then I'd start writing and I'd deliberately just do something because it was clever. <laughs> and I think, oh, those guys will really love this. And it was the wrong reason for writing a piece of music because it's like writing a piece of music because you want the people to think how great you are. And it kind of messed up a few pieces of music as well because you just have to learn when to do it and when not to do it, when it's the musically right thing to do and when it, it just isn't. You just Sometimes you just have to leave things alone because they work. Yeah, so the thing that's immediate and powerful that makes this sort of the quintessential pop song is this. My son was comparing it to some big Coldplay song, the Vita. Yeah. Regardless, so that's the foundation of the song, right? Is The actual story of the lyrics, how does that come into it? Was this 
a pre-existing idea that you glommed on or was this something that you were kind of making up as you were going along trying to come up with it's one of these words and music ones is where the the words sort of came as part of the melody i can actually remember what i was doing when it came into my head i was walking my dog across some fields and i just started singing it in my head i just started singing these tears are all I have, or all I, it's, and then the, the rhythm of the words, and I think that pretty much sure. most of the words were there in that chorus. I wasn't absolutely sure what the hell it was about. I probably don't have any more, but there, you know, it would have been stuck on my iPhone as I was walking the dog. It would have been put on there, and I probably forgot about it for a few months, as I do, and then I'd just be wading through bits and pieces on my iPhone and come across that. And I, I just remember listening to it off the iPhone and thinking, well, the words are there and this is pretty much ready to go. This is, why don't you just write this song? So that was it. And now all I like to do then is find out what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> so do you try to sketch out when you've got a story song like this? Do you try to, like I had another guest on this guy from a band called Beauty Pill. Yeah. Who he was telling me then details of the story that didn't make it into the song. I'm like, this is way more narrative thought that I put in you know, when I'm putting in lyrics like this. Is that the way you air or is it more, it's vague and maybe I better make this a little more specific? Yeah, you, because you can't write. I've learned over these to try and write just to like a little microcosm of what you're writing about. It's the little things, not try and say everything about everything in one song because you end up probably saying nothing. And just stay on message and stick to a very specific point. And the point in this song being that the only thing that keeps this girl connected to this guy who's gone, whether it's from a bereavement or a relationship breakup, it doesn't matter. The only thing that still connects her to him are the tears and the act of crying and the act of just that's where she's with him in that moment. And just to try, not necessarily to explain it, but just to try and put people in that moment. If you have to explain a, a lyric within the lyric, then you're not probably not writing a very good lyric. You just have to put people in mind of what she's thinking and where she is, really. Now, for some reason, I had a more convoluted interpretation. I'd, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> which was that she's in a relationship with some bastard. Yeah. And the tears are somehow the coping mechanism. But, of course, that doesn't actually fit with the trying hard. Well, so trying hard to let him go would be, she should leave this guy, yeah. but he's a bastard. <laughs> if that's what it is to you, you know, I mean, that's that's fine with me. No, but it's just, I'm just got, cause I had to go and print them out cause I couldn't remember them when you said you were going to do this. And I obviously had to listen to the tracks again cause I don't hear them that often. The epitaph thing wouldn't work as well unless it was like she's planning on murdering him. Yeah. But she does, it's like she doesn't want these tears to stop. She'd rather he was there than not. But that, yes. that is basically saying that he's not physically there, but the only mm. way she can be there with him or he can be there with her is through the act of crying that's why she keeps crying and they can be his epitaph and she if she didn't cry she'd laugh yeah and that makes the juxtaposition of the words and the music make more sense because it has an i sort of i will survive feel in terms of it's a yeah kind of exultant main riff the tears in this sense are kind of a good thing or a comfort there are yeah and it's it's just the, the act of her letting go or trying to that's all it's about it's a very small thing but I found it easier to write about the little things over the years than it is to write about the big kind of world-shattering things. <laughs> I guess, is there anything in particular in the elaborate studio production? There's a bunch of elements that you could you know, have all at once that are in the main riff, but instead mm. you back off a little bit. So at around two and a half minutes in, so the very beginning, again, you start off with the single note guitar line, guitar bass doubled, and then have the keyboard 
Well, on halfway through, you sort of switch it around and take that away so that the bass and the distortion guitar are just punctuating only. So you can hear a little more the main, well, I was going to say keyboard riff, but I think it's actually guitar and keyboard in unison, right? The da, 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 because it sounds like when you're two and a half minutes in, and that happens again, that actually the high string keyboard is not even in there. That's sort of saved for the, now we want to hear an octave up. But you've got a couple of layers of keyboard. Either it's a couple of layers of keyboard or you jump up an octave. Now it's the big part. Yeah, I meant the keyboards, yeah. It's more guitar than keyboard in that where it mm-hmm. breaks down a bit. And it's a very kind of understated keyboard where the big sort of synthy, fizzy keyboard doesn't come in until the whole thing kicks in a few bars later. And then at the end, you kind of do the same thing where you've got this, uh, you've got a really actually nice, well, it's pretty subtle. So are you playing everything on this? So you're playing the bass and everything? Set the drums, yeah. No, Paul's playing the guy. Paul Geary plays okay, so, playing the bass on that. So the, the, the bass in particular, I mean, a really serves the song. I know some of your early stuff, you really like <laughs> fancy bass lines, like yeah. that, which I, as a bass player, appreciate. But you know, it's really following the thing. And finally, right near the end of the song, you let him kind of open up just a little bit. Just to add a little more funk in there. Yeah. So it's these subtle things. And even just so you're repeating the chorus like three times at the end. And well, let's add some 16th note tambourine just during the last half of the last one, just to like Give it that extra little push. Do you know what? It's just great someone hearing all this detail because that you put your heart and soul in, into something and you spend hours and hours programming hi-hats and, and doing God <laughs> knows what else. And you think, well, you know, in the end, who's going to care? Because they're going to be listening to it on a MP3 on a phone somewhere or whatever. <laughs> but it's just kind of... <laughs> It's all worthwhile that you've actually noticed all this stuff going on because it, it, it's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm kind of building. I think, well, what's the point in having another chorus if it's exactly the same as the one before? It's either got a build or it's got to fall apart or it's got to have some point in actually having it. I just wanted to increase the tension and the vibe, really. Yeah, so the bass picks up quite significantly and then the old 16th tambourine, which is, which I, I use a lot, yeah. Now, that said, are you... <laughs> It's okay to confess this, but for the keyboard parts, given that you're doing this in a computer setup, yeah. are you cutting and pasting between the, so that when, when that synth chords, it's actually just the same performance as the previous? Oh, for sure, because I'm not a keyboard player. So if I'm supplying the keyboards, I am quite simply programming everything and it's copied. I'm not, why would I play it again if it's, if it's performing the same function, you know? And, you know, to the event that the ones when the keyboard's being augmented, I just copy the dots down to the next track and using a different sound and just the cask, isn't that what everybody does? If, if I could play keyboards, if I could play the, sit down and play <laughs> the piano, then it would be different. I could actually do it within a performance you know I'd, I'd play a bit louder i play you know i'd just play with a bit more intensity and uh, but i can't do that i don't have those kind of chops on the keyboard being a guitar player so um yeah absolutely cut and paste we're now halfway in that was nick kershaw now if you haven't heard the nakedly examined music podcast itself in each of those episodes we discuss three songs with the artists in question and in fact the bits that you're hearing here are slightly edited versions of the first song discussed so you may well already have the idea and want to go over to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com and just dive into that pile of great discussions. You've heard so far we have country, we have synthopop, there's also indie, lo-fi, different flavors of art rock, prog rock, 
punk, grunge, electronica, country rock, jazz, new age, a good amount of folk, some R&B, a little bit of classical and rap. So not quite everything. I've also interviewed some very good female singer-songwriters recently. So no, it's not all just white guys, though it is a lot of white guys. All right, here's the discussion with Ken Stringfellow. We're going to go right to the current album, 2016's Solid States. Do you have any introductory words for this song in particular, The Sound of Clouds, what it's about, where it's coming from? The big theme of this Posey's album is mortality, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we lost one of our band members during the making of this album, Darius Manwala, who died completely out of the blue, age 38. It was in May of 2015, and we started working on this record in January, February. So we were still doing some of the writing, although I will say that this song, I think, may have been written before that, but... The specter was there. I mean, you know, we're in that age where like parents and we're all getting older and people we know are starting to disappear. And we hadn't even had 2016 yet. We hadn't even seen that, that with the year where everybody died. And these thoughts are already on my mind. The end game is on my mind. And that's what this song is describing. How could the end game be beautiful? Yeah. 
You're an XTC fan, right? Mm-hmm. So this strikes me kind of like the later XTC, like the song Rook, that's also about mortality in this way. Mm-hmm. Certainly just quarterly. I mean, that's one of the big differences. I don't know if it's just more obvious when it's a keyboard song. Yeah. I know that some of your earlier guitar stuff was some ninths and crunchy stuff as well. But you get into this chorus, and I know you got these parallel fifths in the vocals and some other funny stuff, but it's also just a lot of major sevenths and ninths floating around. Can you say something about just, is that the way you write now? Chromatic chord progressions are like a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. I love, for some reason, those speak to me. I don't know why, because maybe it's the 12-tone row fan in me knows that if you do a chromatic chord progression, you're going to be able to use every single note in the keyboard at some point in your travels. I think a chromatic passage, because it doesn't move through the tried and true chord progression zone, allows you to announce that you are heading into uncharted territory, so to speak. Even though the concept of chromatic chord progressions has been around, they're there to be used, but people don't use them that much because they they sound a little arbitrary. But if used correctly, they can kind of break out of cliche world. You know, I mean, there are plenty of hackneyed chord progressions that... Even if they're wonderfully hackneyed chord progressions, you know, like they announce that you're quoting to some degree, you know, you're, you're using a trope and that kind of chord progression says, hey, we're moving beyond the world of tropes because I'm talking about a world that none of us understand, which is the world of death. You know, none of us really, even if we've lost loved ones or friends or whatever, that even makes it worse. We understand even less about that world. And so if we're talking about that in this song, that's a good way to announce that, hey, we're going to look at that area that we don't know much about and we don't like to look at that much. And did you find shifting to writing more on keyboard was also tonally freeing in a way because you're not kind of, you know, when I'm writing on guitar, either I'm using the main chords or I'm doing a fairly self-conscious variation of it. Like that, okay, now I'm lifting this finger so it's a ninth rather than a you know a regular chord or adding this one extra thing. Unless you're just working with alternate tunings where you just don't even know what's going to come out <laughs> until you play it. We did that a lot for that very reason over the years. For example, the album Amazing Disgrace has almost no songs in standard tuning. I mean, like they're all over the place. And even on Frosting on the Beater, we had a lot of alternate tunings for precisely that reason. So that you're not like going, okay, I'm lifting this finger. So that's a ninth and this is a major seventh. Like you might end up, you know, Peter Buck always kind of laughed at me saying, okay, you're doing all this work so that you can play C, F, and G again. And I'm like, yes, but I don't know it's C, F, and G. So again, intention has a lot to do with it. Well, didn't he say that himself? Like that's why he shifted to mandolin because so he wouldn't know what he was doing so much. (laughs) I remember hearing an interview with him about that. Well, that doesn't surprise me, but he was happy to point out that I was going through a lot of trouble for perhaps diminishing returns, but he liked the results. He wasn't dissing my songwriting by any means. Especially if you're playing it with a lot of distortion, like the subtleties of the voicing are not even going to come through necessarily. Well, yeah, then you're really lost. It's funny, you know, I was just, I'm potentially working with this band as a producer and they sent me their demos. It's a young band. So these guys are like 21, whatever. And he said, well, you know, I play a lot of jazz chords and I listened to the demo and I was like, how would I know that? There's like, you know, dinosaur junior levels of distortion. Like you could be playing root fifth or you could be playing like every flatted everything and it would be exactly the same. I mean, I can't, it's like you do realize that some of your efforts here are a little bit masked by the amount of distortion you use. And he's like, 
But again, there's intention in there. Intention is all in art, right? And are you thinking in terms of even chords? Or are you thinking like the intro here? I mean, the, the main part seems obviously riff based rather than I came up with a little five note progression here on the piano that I'm repeating rather than this is the chord that I'm playing. Or do you still think in terms of chords when you're doing that kind of riff? I wasn't thinking in terms of chords. Of course, I'd turn it all off and just start putting my hands down. And we were talking a little bit earlier about the switch from guitar to piano. Piano is my first instrument. I mean, it's the first thing I played in bands, some of the baby bands that I had when I was in junior high, for example. But I moved over to guitar because guitar's cool and easier to carry, especially after my years playing with R.E.M., where I was primarily playing keyboards. I mean, that's what they needed me the most for. Sometimes I jumped to guitar if somebody else was... We all switched instruments a lot. I saw that tour, 1999, I believe, the, the first one you were on. Yeah, the up tour. We all switched around, but what they, the skill that they needed the most represented because they had it the least among themselves was a certain kind of keyboard playing. I mean, Mike Mills is a great piano player, but synth playing is a different animal, and so they need someone who could kind of work like synths and samplers and do all that and make it sound like R.E.M. instead of like OMD, OMD R.E.M., which could be cool, actually. But anyway, so my chops went way up on those tours, you know, doing that for 10 years. And, and I just found myself more interested in the keyboard possibilities and the layout of the keyboard and just the feel of it, the velocity attack of a keyboard and the result that you get. You know, at a certain point, you hit a guitar as hard as you want, and it kind of gets to a certain point and stops because, you know, the, the amplifier itself is a natural compressor. It, your dynamic range on the guitar is a little less startling in practice, I think, than your dynamic range on the keyboard. I mean, on a, on a beautiful piano, I can pound the crap out of that thing and it gets pretty loud or I can play like very delicate, like little tiny things. And I think it has a wider dynamic range. It is, of course, called a pianoforte in its full name for that very reason. Let's turn to some of the specifics of, so are you through playing just the piano part or are you, is any of it, I put down the riff once and then I copy it 10 times just to... You know, I actually play the whole song. Okay. You know, I keep working at it until I've got an arrangement that I like. And of course, I'm generally playing it into MIDI so I can quantitize it. So I wanted to ask then about these percussion little bits. So you got some really cool synth percussion stuff on here. That's this tuned stuff that's near the beginning that you know, has this sort of tribal feel, but obviously, you know, is electronic, I, right. I assume. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that I love. All that I play by hand. I use a program called Transfuser, which is just essentially a drum sampler with different possibilities where you can create patterns or you can load up some pads with sounds and, and play a MIDI keyboard or MIDI pads or whatever. It's quite flexible for input and output in terms of like it has inboard sounds. You can import any sounds that you want from whatever library that you want. And then the way that you can get MIDI in can come in a couple different ways or you can make slice up patterns or do whatever you want. There's all kinds of things you can do in Transfuser. And what I like to do is jam through with my fingers and come up with a best of and then drop those in where I like them, you know, so that it's never quite the same twice. I mean, I might, I don't really do a lot of copy and pasting. I just, I might play something similarly and use that more than once. But I, if I like it, I might try and just play it again. And, you know, you can do some funny things through quantization that you didn't really play it that way, and it, but you can make it more robotic or you can make it faster or whatever. All those kind of things can happen, but they're all played by hand originally pretty much. It's pretty rare unless it's something really, really stupid 
that I program it. I know there's a certain school of songwriting in, in this particular age that we live in now that's like loop-based, and you layer different loops, and, and you drop things out or whatever, and the Ableton way of writing songs, and it, and it makes legit pieces of music that I love. I just don't really work that way. I think of things with a lot more dynamics and a lot more dropping out and a lot more changes more rapidly than a pattern that you get used to. That's probably, you know, one of the reasons I'm super unpopular. But I like things to change much more rapidly and much more often. The other little instruments that you picked here, you've got, what is this very high, almost like a triangle that's entering in the chorus that's playing the main, it's like you were trying to fill up the hi-hat spot, but it's very high. Well, there's treated piano that's pretty cool. And that was done at Frankie, our drummer's studio in, in LA. You know, we took a grand piano and basically took gaffer tape or whatever and, and made a little loop of gaffer over each string that we were going to use so that the string was like kind of constricted so that when you hit it, it, it didn't have a lot of sustain or resonance. That's kind of the jam on that. Like ding, 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 ding. Well, okay, so I feel less silly now asking then the other sound that's at the courses that's at the end of some of the phrases, like on uh, equal and traces. It sounds like you're doing the, I have an amp with spring reverb in it, and I'm dropping it two inches, and it's making this, like, is that what that sound is? That's an electronic sound that okay. I just, I made. I think I took some drum sample and just started twisting it and bending it and running it through stuff and, and dropped that in. But that's, and with delay and stuff like that. But that's a non-organic sound. Ah, well, there must be some reason of physics why that would sound like that in terms of what what the reverb is actually doing in an amp when you throw it around like that. Well, yeah, the, the spring is hitting really hard and overloading it. Basically, I mean, the overload is kind of what we hear. Yep. And then the bass is also... Synth bass is not real bass, or is it real bass? There's two things. I mean, there is a kind of fat, low synth bass that's kind of in a lot of different parts of the song. But there's also parts where I'm playing like a, a Fender 6. Just at the end where the real drums come in? Is that... Oh, okay, the articulated places. The, the, all those syncopated lines are like Fender 6. All right, well, so that answers part of my question. I mean, it sounds like once you enter this electronic realm... I can see, especially if you're working remotely with somebody, it seems like, oh, I can just keep everything in the electronic realm. And, you know, perhaps if we share the same software, I can send that thing overseas and let the other guy even mess around with the electronic <laughs> settings. How were you communicating with John about this? What did John actually add to this? John added his vocals and mm -hmm. some guitar things. So the guitars, like in around three minutes in, you get with the bridge come the I long for completion. You get this giant cave noise. Is that guitar feedback? Is that where what guitar you're talking about, or is that something else? Well, there, there's that, but actually in that section, a lot of that is human voice mm. amplified and backwards. We made a backwards mix of that section, and I did like kind of operatic vocals backwards, you know, singing through an amp with amp reverb. And so. It has a little bit of a guitar-like timbre, but it's going through an amp, but it's actually me. But he did add guitar to it. I long for completion. I long for completion. I long for completion. 
electronic programming in general on this album is kind of my domain. And I think it's my biggest contribution in a way because it's the thing that sets this album apart from our the rest of our work the most, I think. Again, that was Ken Stringfellow. We're going to wrap up by listening to the longest section. And this is not even the full discussion of the song. It's with exogenesis guitarist Steve Hackett. Very gracious, very imaginative, very experienced. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get pretty quick to In the Skeleton Gallery from your The Night Siren coming out right now. Do you have any introductory words about that project and that song in particular? It's about nightmares. It's about being a kid and dealing with all those fears. And then it also addresses some adolescent stuff as well, different kind of nightmares, feeling like you're pinned down and couldn't move. And I know other people have felt like that. Got something to do with adolescence, puberty, strange times in your life. Things that go bump in the night.
you always have very cinematic orchestrations. So it gives you a lot of room to illustrate what you're talking about. That now, you know, now we're drifting off into the nightmare realm. And so the entire orchestra can come and illustrate that the nightmare is here. Yeah, there are a few things on that track. There's some backwards guitar. There's some strange noises on it, strange string stuff. There's some real drums, which have been somewhat processed and altered. It's a very difficult track to describe in a way, but it's got something compelling about it. It's got a change of rhythm at one point. And one point, it was two separate tracks, but I decided to make them into one. And it was only the chorus that really worked of the second track. So I just used that bit and used all the other things that I had in mind. So I threw away a lot of stuff. I threw away a whole song in the making of this one particular song because the other song didn't really work. And sometimes you have to make a cruel cuts in order to make things really fly. Yeah. So I was wondering about that. The second song we're going to do, Love Song to a Vampire, also has... You know, it goes into a deep purple rock sort of thing toward the end, but then comes back. You know, it retains the theme that you started with, whereas this one, it's just gone. It's this transition through this marching section, and then you go into the 6-8, and well, the marching yeah. things comes back over the 6-8 while the instruments are spazzing out, but the initial going to sleep part is just gone. Yeah, I decided not to go back to anything at the beginning. There didn't seem to be much point of that, although... I have to say that the track tiptoes out in a Disney-esque kind of way. Maybe I'm talking more about Tchaikovsky, you know, when I hear those tinkly chords that are playing the thing that's been the huge riff, but doing it very, very gently. It has a, a kind of sinister quality by underplaying it. That's not how we do it live. When we go out live, we go out screaming. But uh, on record, you can rein those things in. And the loud, soft aspect, of course, those dynamics are really an important way of engaging the listener. Now, when you have a riff like the opening Eastern-sounding string part, I know with some of the orchestral sections, you just say, okay, Roger, you go handle that. But this is the main riff. I assume this is something that you would dictate, that you would demo on guitar or with your voice or something. Well, that riff, actually, I was talking to my wife, Jo, about the things that I'd done in the past that I liked. And I said to her, I could do with a really slow riff here. And you know what? She sang it to me, and I changed one note in order to make the scale a little stranger on it but i kept exactly what she sang and it works a treat with the the bendy strings we used la scoring strings on that plus some other samples that only roger knows about on that but we were going to make it real strings but it had such an eerie quality with the sampley stuff you know what with time compression and time stretching to make the bendy bits really strange on it And are you using the bass foot pedal in that section, the bomb? It sounds like there's synth bass on the one. Yeah, well, that's it's really string sampled that. So we've got real drums, we've got real guitar, but what's going on around it is uh, sampled, but, you know, a whole bunch of them. Actually, I think we might have a real double bass player on that. Yeah, we have my friend Dick Driver on that. Sometimes I forget what's real and what isn't because... We ghost things with Unreal very often. And maybe it's the other, sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah, that's what it sounds like when it, when it actually gets into the verses that instead of having a traditional bass, then you've got the, well, it sounds like a whole cello slash bass section, which is interesting in that setting that you've got the full rock drum kit. You would think that having that sort of drone with that, yeah, that it's a strange combination there. 
There's something about orchestral basses and cellos. If you hear a, an orchestral bass end, it's got this feeling of infinite bass about it, whereas the sharp tone of a rock bass guitarist, it's a very defined thing, and it's big in another way, but it sits right in front of you, whereas you get that feeling of infinite perspective, I think. You know, I get the idea of big ocean liners drifting off down infinite spaces when I hear what orchestras do. And sometimes, even if the mix is a bit boomy or you're listening to it on a boomy large system, sometimes those orchestral basses only benefit from that. So sometimes what we do with orchestral bass ends is is we might track something with bass clarinet, for instance, Mm. I'm fond of cellos and bowed basses as well. You can use quite a lot of things on a low end. And then what would go into determining, it makes it sound like a Zeppelin song, that you to have the big rock beat there, as opposed to, now that you've set up the orchestral bass thing, well, it'd be easy enough to do a sort of timpani roll sort of thing, you know, so that the whole rhythm section has that orchestral other feeling. But no, we're synthesizing them. And other things that I took out, I originally put chords behind the vocal, and I was playing that on guitar at first, and then we, by accident, we played it back without that, and, and it made the vocal sound instantly larger. So I thought, less is more on this one. Let's leave out some things. I mean, I'm very capable of, if I'm not careful, getting up to about 300 tracks on any one particular song, <laughs> yes. just because you can these days. You stick a tambourine down and it has its own track and its own program and, and so on it, it goes. And Roger King often turns to me and says, you realize that we are in excess of 300 tracks on this. And I say to him, well, how many? He says, I can't be bothered to count, but, you know, it might be as much as 350. So you've got something like four symphony orchestras at times and a couple of rock bands and the rest, you know, the sky's the limit. And I do track up quite a bit, but that's to give something like the feeling that you're talking about. You know, I do use, I use real strings uh, on this. We have a uh, Christine Townsend who's playing violin and viola. And there's another Townsend on it. Who's Rob Townsend right. playing soprano sax. We have Mellotron flutes, a number of singers, not just me. There's quite a lot going on from moment to moment and sometimes uh, right at the when it starts to go really rocky in the 6-8 the guitar is being twinned by bass it's also being twinned by organ sometimes it's not yep. always obvious when organ is doubling something but it suddenly can make the guitar sound so much larger well I've seen even on stage that sometimes you go into these riffs and well might as well have two other guitarists play with you to really solidify the thing. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, it, it's nice. I think live ensemble playing is usually the strength of any one band, no matter whether there's a decent soloist up there or not. I think ensemble playing, when you can get the whole band playing like one instrument, that was something that I discovered many, many years ago and is still something that I look for in, in other bands I mean, for instance, we went to see Anson Rabin Wakeman the other night, you know, with Lee Pomroy playing bass, who's my pal. You know, we've worked together lots. And, you know, it's the ensemble playing that really comes across that thing where everyone's playing to a kind of a virtuosic standard, but it's really tight ensemble playing. And, and we can 
translate that sometimes to orchestra. The last gig I did in the States was in Buffalo with the Buffalo Philharmonic. So we had all of those going at the same time with a great conductor. I love all things orchestral and all things rock, and, and I do think that they belong together. A difficult thing, I mean, certainly if it's an orchestral setting, you're telling them exactly what to play. But if it's a matter of a number of people, okay, let's layer ourselves on top of each other, then the sort of stark tonality that you establish, I mean, right here at the beginning, you said you took out the chords, and that really makes it effective when about a minute and a half in, when the dream section starts, the sax comes in, that you've you've been playing in some kind of D up to now, but it's not a D major, it's not a D minor, it's just a, a modal, you know, you can hear the one and the five, but then you switch, now it's up to E, and it just sounds so warm, and it's not even a major chord. Like, it's just, again, the E modal with an F sharp I heard in the background there, but it sounds like so warm and open because of you've been able to sustain this, whereas if you just, the natural thing for a keyboardist to do, if you're playing in a band with someone, to add to your, th- it's just, okay, well, I'm gonna add some ninths, I'm gonna fill out the chord, yeah. I'm gonna but to keep that starkness is, is a talent. Again, I've learned with time that it's not always a great idea to fill up the mid-range with keyboard chords. I'm not saying that that doesn't sound wonderful, and it certainly does. You mentioned modal stuff, and I think big riffs can only benefit from not necessarily having all the harmonies going at the same time. So unison seems to be, I would say, probably an undiscovered territory or rediscovered territory for many bands who are thinking, how do we do progressive stuff how do we get to sound like those british bands and it's very easy to fill it all in with hammond organs and mellotrons and all the modern equivalents and what have you but there are times when it's nice to just open up the picture and say no i'm i'm going anti-proggy here i've got something more like heavy metal perhaps when the marching section finally comes in which I love that I wrote glass of water synth. I'm not sure that's sort of sloshing. I know what you mean. Yeah. Right before the actual marching comes in and then the whole band comes in and then you use the background vocals really interestingly where, you know, introducing the female semi-improvisational wailing to yeah. add a bit of sparkle to this section. Was it just having them jam on that vocally on that section a few times and picking out what you wanted, or or was it more directed? Lots of jamming on that section and allowing things that weren't the main melody to be happening at the same time to give it a kind of hellish quality, the idea of you're going down, man, and what's happening, and there's all this other stuff going on, you know, this kind of pleading, soulful Thing. So I let a number of things happen on that. And it's a way forward. You know, as I say, that was what worked. We kept what worked. And there's a lot of reliance on Rob Townsend because we have this thing where, where we have Gully Bream, the drummer, on it. But then we have Rob Townsend, who really leads the charge with soprano sax on so much of this. And he comes up with two entirely different sounding solos. One is 
to introduce this kind of dream sequence as, you know, that's kind of floating, unconscious, spooky, Egyptian-sounding thing almost. And then there's the kind of flat-out jazz burn solo that he does so well. And, uh, of course, he did these one after another. He just comes up with great, great, great solos. It would take other people ages to work that sort of thing out. I know it would take me ages to work that out. You know, when I improvised, it's much more, um, I think it's probably much more straight and I work things out. But he, you know, he's a jazz professor and he has great ideas about how you can arrange scales within solos. And he just does this in a flash of a second. But I'm often saying to him, what is it you're doing there? And he'll say, well, it's a, it's a diminished run. And he'll patiently explain it to me and then i'll assimilate it or he'll say this is a scale that comes from bartok i play him a discord and he says well actually it's a scale from bartok and he shows me those notes and we use that on anything but love but just right at the end i used is that not for the first time in my life so would it be sacrilege with one of his parts to he does it multiple takes and use the beginning of one take and the end of another take or is it just so organically connected within a given take that like you just have to use a particular performance well, we had done that with him in the past, but on this particular track, and he just came up with some alternatives. I think we liked the first one each time, so he we just went with that. You know, sometimes you just can't improve on it. It wouldn't be human nature if someone didn't say, let me try another one, I might be able to better it. But the ones that he does are extraordinary. He's also trained as a percussionist, so he's got this extraordinary sense of time within the solos that he does and he can find his own time within a given structure and that's something rather extraordinary and i I, i've learned something from that that sometimes you can hold the line but it's with just with yourself the jazz man choosing his own timing it can work very well and you know contrapuntally but it's an extraordinary talent that, that he possesses So to be fair, when you say you use this many tracks, that single, that's a half a dozen tracks right there. So it's not, it's consecutive. It's not all on top of each other. Well, that's a sample of, of a gospel choir that Roger had, and they're particularly good. It just sounds quite extraordinary. So, you know, we've used that in some places, and sometimes we twin it. Sometimes we have stuff in real time going with them to augment them or they augment me. At one time, of course, you had a Mellotron choir, and that seemed absolutely amazing back in 1973 when we did Selling End Up by the Pound and on that very first track, Dancing with the Moonlit Night, the Mellotron choir coming in. And that's, that was it, you know, in terms of available choirs at your fingertips, there was that. But now there are many, 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 of course, and there's something about the gospel choir that is really, really full-throated and, and extraordinary. Well, I feel better about hearing that you're using the sample because after watching a little of a video where you're talking about you know, how you're layering the string sounds, that it's not just a string sample, it's the same person even playing the same part multiple times with different fingerings and you know to make it really sound like an actual full orchestra. And so I was picturing you having your singers <laughs> repeat the same note. You know, we just want to do this one, it's only one half note here, but uh, we're going to spend half a day on it. We do that as well. I mean, sometimes when we've recorded strings, for instance, we've taken the same person but moved the mic for different takes so that it has a different ambience in the room and much the same as an orchestra functions in terms of, you know, if you've got stereo mics up as opposed to every single player mic, there's a great sound that comes off of an orchestra 
because of the different desks and the way they have a natural perspective away from the microphone. So, um, and nothing new in that. You know, you think of Hound Dog and, and the distant drums that kick in when it all stops. And there's color for you right there from the room, from whatever presumably compressors they were using way back in the day. So in that deep purple section, that rock section that you finally get to, so this is the beginning of the other song or was the marching part the beginning of the second song? Um, I think the marching part was the beginning of the, of the song, which we, we decided not to do. The song was called Zombie Powder, and we decided not to do that, but use the chorus from Zombie Powder, which was the get up section. Well, so that does explain a little bit about, you know, I, I was wondering when you have these, again, very cinematic arrangements and the ability to fairly literally depict anything, you know, if you want to say, and now we're entering a dream, you can then write a, an instrumental part that directly reflects that. But going into a deep purple rock thing, like that doesn't jump out as now I'm illustrating the nightmare realm or, you know, it's something more general than that. So the fact that you put these together, of course, any sort of description like that, this is the nightmare realm, this is the evil part or whatever, has so many different possible realizations. It's not really that restrictive. Yeah, it all depends how you perceive this stuff. I didn't have the deep purple in mind. Also, I'm thinking of noir films as well, mm-hmm. where you've got that kind of, you know, thing from, I guess, the, the 1950s onwards, a kind of something that would, you know, creep up in risk where you've got flattened fifths and, but, you know, but they're all passing notes in the idea of something that's slightly bluesy, slightly jazzy. It takes you off somewhere and it's where a lot of these forms cross. So I, I get very influenced by film stuff. Incidentally, while we're talking about this track, the mix in 5.1, when it comes to what you call the watery part, which is basically processed strings, that sounds extraordinary in surround because it just seems to, you can't pin it down. It seems to dance in front of you and kind of go in and out of you when you're sitting. And it's very, very unnerving at that point. And it reminds me of when I was a kid, when I was sick at one point and I was in this altered state of consciousness and I was able to see sound waves coming towards me and they scared the life out of me. Um, I, I could see them. I, I knew not at that time what they were, but I could hear the electrical charge that went with them, the vertical lines coming towards me and, and breaking up with this kind of electrical charge. And it was very frightening indeed. And this has something like that. That was a serendipitous thing because I wasn't aiming for that, but it was yet another feeling of, you know, things that you can't pin down as a kid and you, you can't even tell adults about it because you don't have the vocabulary to be able to talk about it. But in a way, it's apt that it's in this particular song. I always think actually about music in those sort of visual terms, and it's very freeing because if you're thinking here are five guys or however many sitting with instruments, each of them emits a noise. That's a completely different approach to there's a giant yellow square coming, you know, from the left side here. And you're actually thinking in terms of the stereo space and the big blocks of tone sort of primarily. And then which notes you actually pick or which particular sounds are going to represent those is almost secondary or serendipitous at the best. I think music is very subjective. It means different things to different people. And so it may well be that someone else will get a very different picture in mind. But the main thing is that you get an idea of some kind of picture, especially from instrumental music. It's very often the case. I've got something in mind and I won't necessarily be thinking video when I'm talking picture. I'm talking about something else. But then whoever's listening, if they've liked what you've done in previous years, I think what happens is that the audience 
is the true owner of it. If you are affected to the degree where it becomes part of your memory bank, your DNA, or whatever you call it, you get the, the true picture by listening to other people who will say, actually, it means the following. And, and I've done this with people that I've been a fan of as well. I've done this with Ian MacDonald when he was with King Crimson and talking to him about, about Epitaph, the bit where the Mellotron rises up on that diminished chord and then get the bend of note at the end of it. And I was listening to that this very day. And I said to Ian at the time, I said, surely you must have been thinking about something like the Holocaust. You must have been thinking about a bomb going off, the way the music just mushrooms into that. And I've heard other people say the same thing. And you know what? Ian, the guy who wrote it, said, oh, I never really thought about it like that. So he must have done something instinctively that the rest of us just went, oh, my God, you know, that's a literal depiction of the end of the world. And so we, the listeners, distill this information from other people who've perhaps their antenna has been up and they've received it in some other kind of way. But music passes through musicians, I think. They don't always get the full import of it. I know that the Genesis guys that I worked with have got no idea about the impact of the early work that we did. And it's up to listeners who've told me what it meant to them. So I've been able to conduct my own survey over time and I realize what music does when it works. It takes people to other worlds. It does all sorts of things. People say, oh, you know, this song saved my life. This did this. This was the song that put me and my girlfriend together. And uh, it's all sorts of things, isn't it? You know, the power of music, the, the healing quality of it. It's so many different powerful things. It brings people together. All right, thanks for listening to this special presentation. I've really gotten to talk to so many brilliant creative people on the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. I hope you will check it out at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or... Look us up on iTunes. And if you're the kind of person who's maybe less interested in going in this depth about music, but enjoyed me digesting some episodes to present them here, let me know that too. This is Mark Linton Meyer signing off. <laughs>